If you did the reading, you saw uh, the homework referred to the famous Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. It's the story about a man who looks back over his life and he reflects how satisfying it was to do it his way. Little side note here, that song in the United Kingdom is the number one song requested to be sung or played at, guess where? Funerals. Yes, funerals. Listen to what one um, funeral spokesman said. He said it has that timeless appeal. The words sum up what so many people feel about their lives and how they would like their loved ones to remember them. End quote. Rest easy, loved ones. He did it his own way. He decided for himself that he would do his own thing, and it was satisfying. The funeral director or the funeral spokesman was right. It does have a timeless appeal. It's as old as dirt. It's been going on since the garden. If you did your homework this week, you saw that this is the exact message that the serpent pitched in the garden to Eve. This morning, if you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to be looking at a familiar passage. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3? We've studied about this. We've talked about this passage before. Much of what we talk about today is going to be review. But this is a passage that we have got to understand because if we don't understand this passage, nothing else in life is going to make sense. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I was reading a news website, and on one day's news, it had stories about war. It had stories about nations attacking one another. It had stories about disease, about how it was spreading. It had uh, stories about random acts of violence. It had stories about corruption and cheating in government. And you could spend two minutes reading maybe two seconds reading, and you begin to get very depressed and anxious. And you start to wonder, is, has the world gone mad? Why, why is it like this? Why do people do the things that they do? Why do I do the things that I do? Well, Genesis chapter 3 is going to explain that. Now, I want to do something a little different this morning. As we work through this passage, I want to introduce to you and spend some time doing a simple Bible study tool that can be very helpful in understanding um, how to study the Bible for yourselves. One of my great passions is to see women be able to feed themselves, for you to be able to study the Word of God for yourselves and not have to depend on commentaries and devotionals and things like that. And uh, if you are here, by the way, or listening, and you have an interest in wanting to know how to study the Bible for yourselves, you you see me. I would love to help you. I would make it a priority to sit with you and meet with you and and help teach you how to do that. Today, we're going to talk about a Bible study tool that um, is called, you're asking the passage investigative questions. Okay, precept refers to this as the five W's and an H question. And I wrote them for you on your paper. They are the questions, who, what, where, when, why, and how. All right, and basically what you do is you read through the passage and then you ask those questions of it. It is especially helpful when you're going through a narrative 
like today's passage, so it's a good one to try it out on. I'm going to read through the passage, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and then we're going to practice some of these. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, I'm going to step out over this. I've always been told in the past that I couldn't cross that line so without it affecting this. So we're going to see if if it does or not. Okay, first question, who? That's that's always a good place to start because that's talking about the characters. It's talking about the people in a passage. And that's usually a very obvious place. Those are usually obvious things, so it makes a good place to start. All right, so this is audience participation time. All right, who? Who is in this passage? Somebody tell me. Somebody tell me a character. Serpent, yes. Now the serpent, as we keep reading, as we did some cross-referencing, we would find that the serpent is the embodiment of Satan in this passage, correct? All right, so let's write him down. He's, he's uh, obviously a character. Who else? Eve, yes, we've got the woman. All right, anybody else? Adam, how do you know? He was with him. Verse 6 tells us that he was with them. Now this is important. Because you and I, we've studied the original design of man. And we know what he's supposed to be doing. Okay, he's silent. He's not saying anything. And we know that's going to be significant. So let's write him. Okay, next question, what? Now when you're dealing with the what question, you are primarily dealing with the action of the passage. What's going on? What are those characters doing? So who can give me, give me a short summary of what's going on. What's going on? Don't be shy. This is, we're, we're, we're talking obvious, so there's no, there's no trick questions here. Okay, the serpent is challenging Eve. The serpent is trying to get her to do what? Eat, eat, the, eat the fruit and disobey God. She's trying to tempt him, her, to, to disobey and... Um, the commandment. Remember, there was one keep off sign in the garden. There was only one prohibition and the serpent is trying to tempt her to disobey that. All right, so that, and they do. That's the basic action. All right, we could even ask the question, what happens when she eats the forbidden fruit? What happens? Her eyes are open. Yeah, her eyes are open. She sees she's naked. She tries to hide herself with the fig leaves. Okay. All right, very good. The effect of their sin is immediate, isn't it? And we see that when we look at the what question. Okay, we're going to jump and we're going to ask the question where. 
Where is it taking place? It's in the garden. And we see that word garden. The word comes up several times in this passage. Uh, As we keep reading, we would see that as well. Now, I want to take a little uh, bunny trail here because we want to talk a little bit about the garden. What was it like in the garden? And your uh, homework had us look back into Genesis chapter 2 to get an idea about that. So if you want to keep your finger here but turn back over to uh, Genesis chapter 2, We know from previous lessons there were animals in the garden. There was order in the garden. There was lavish provision. We see the word blessed used. We know it was a beautiful place. Um, Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, in the Garden of Eden, the man and his wife have a unique relationship. And, and your homework went over six different qualities that uh, they shared uh, at this time. And we want to go over those because they're going to become significant too. All right, number one, and I have this on your paper. Number one was kinship. Okay, when Adam sees the woman, he knows she's not an animal. Okay, she's family, she's kin. She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. If you were here yesterday and Pastor Justin was talking about the squirrel, coming up to him while he was uh, on the patio, it made me think of this. Because the man was able to connect with the woman in a way that he could not with, with the animals. They were kin. All right, number two is commitment. Commitment. The man was to hold fast to the wife. Now, we've talked about that word before, hold fast. It was a word that was to per- meant to permanently adhere If you remember, we said it was the kind of adherence that skin has on bone, okay? That's the way he's to hold fast to the wife. So they were committed one to another. Third was unity. Now, that was a neat word because it was expressing unity with diversity. It's the same word that will be used later on in Deuteronomy with the expression, the Lord God is one. All right. Now, every once in a while, you'll hear women talking about losing their identity, getting lost in their husband's identity um, because they're just swallowed up. That's not this kind of unity. This kind of unity allowed for oneness with distinction. Okay, the next one, communion. This had to do with intimacy. All right, here's the deal. They were not just roommates, Okay. They, they had physically come together. They had physically become one flesh. And we've talked about this before. With the sexual union, you've got intimacy um, physically. You've got it spiritually. You've got it emotionally. All right? So you've got communion between them. All right? The next one is authenticity. And this is their nakedness suggests this. Their nakedness suggests that they were at ease with one another without any fear of exploitation or rejection. Now, the world is fascinated with this. This past year, Naked Reality TV has become very popular. 
Now, I, I have not seen it, but there is a show called Buying Naked, which is about um, naked people buying real estate. And um, uh, at, at close off, I guess nudist colonies, they, they look around. Uh, there is a show called Naked and Afraid, which is like your survival type show, but the contestants are naked. And then there is the Dating Naked. Now, this was interesting. The producers of that show claimed people's number one complaint about dating is deception. The way to make the most honest and vulnerable dating situation possible is to have everyone naked. They say, they claim that with nothing to hide, their conversations were more meaningful and personal. Well, isn't that interesting? Because think about the garden. The garden, it was the real deal. They were naked, they were open, they were authentic, there was nothing to hide, and they were vulnerable. And that was also, of course, has a lot to do with number six, purity. There was no shame. Because there was no sin, everything about the relationship was pure and it was holy. Now, this, I want you to take a good look at this list because this is a good thing to know. If you have ever wondered what life was like in the Garden of Eden, this is your list. If you've ever wondered what the perfect marriage looked like, it is this. If you ever want to know what the relationship was like between man and God, this is going to give you some very good ideas. But it's more, this is more than just a a paradise story, a list of things that went on in paradise. Because remember, what did we say about this couple? They were to image God. They were to reflect God. They were going to be putting on display the spectacular truths of God. And so what we see going on between the two of them is actually displaying the truth of the Trinity and how the Trinity is in perfect relationship with one another. Okay. It also will go on to image the relationship between Christ and the church, which we find out later. All right, let's go back to our investigative question and ask the question, why? Okay, why do the man and woman listen to the serpent? Why do they disobey him? All right, let's, and and to, to go over this, it's going to help us to notice the progression. And if, um, you know, if we notice the progression, we'll have a better understanding of why the woman does what she does. And you had a chapter of this in your homework, and it should sound familiar to you if you did Lies, Women, Believe. She had a whole section of, uh, of re- repeat from that. So let's see how well you remember this, those of you who are here for that book. Number one, what does she do to the lie? What's her first step? She listens. She listens to the lie, number one. She gives him an audience. She hears him out. Now, sometimes you can't help that. Sometimes you can. But because of that, what does it lead to next? What's the second thing she does? She what? She dwells on the lie. Okay, she continues in the conversation. She continues to engage him in conversation. Instead of dismissing it, instead of turning it off, she continues to be entertained by it. All right? Now, I want to give you, uh, uh, D.A. Carson had a suggestion about what should be done at this point. And he said she should have said something like this. Are you out of your skull? Take a look around you. This is paradise. I don't have any bad memories here. The food is good. 
The work is wonderful. The air is clean. God is the very center of my being. He knows what is wise, what is good. I exist for his very pleasure. And you are suggesting I stick it to him? That struck me as something really useful. Like I should use this whenever I'm tempted. Now, you you might think, well, we don't live in paradise. Well, this is true. But we could still use this as a means of confronting the lies of the enemy or the accusations of the enemy or when our sinful desires kick in. We squash it. We say, are you out of your skull? Take a look around you. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. We have been granted the precious and magnificent promises of God. God is good. God knows what is wise. God knows what is good. I exist for his very pleasure. And you are suggesting I stick it to him. We can, use, we can, we can learn from this. She listens. She dwells. What's the next thing she does? What does she do next? She believes. She believes the lie. Now that becomes a lot easier when you have been dwelling on it. Okay? Now, and, and she's been filling her mind with it. When, this, when the serpent began to tempt her, she was immediately hit with the choice. Does she believe God? Does she trust God? Or does she believe Satan and trust him? Now, we know uh, he, they do believe the lie, and they choose to do it their own way. So what's the next thing she does? What's the four things? What does she do? She acts on the lie. <laughs> now, Remember, up to this point, she's been doing all those six things that we just listed. She's been in perfect communion with her husband. She's been in perfect communion with God. She's been authentic. She's been pure. She's been committed. And then you get to verse 6, and look what it says. Now watch the verbs. She saw. She took. She ate. She gave. Okay, the scripture is laying it out for you. Step one, step two, step three. It's showing you there was nothing spontaneous about this. She's deliberate. It looked good to her. It was going to make her wise. She had an opportunity to show her loyalty to God. And yet she chooses to do her own thing and do it her own way. And you know what? It's the same thing with us. Every time we face a temptation, we have an opportunity to show our loyalty to God and, and put him on display. Okay, we're going to move on to the next question. When? When does all this happen? When you answer the when question, you're going to be looking for the chronological. You're going to be looking for any signs that speak of time, any signs that speak of order. And there's usually words, key words, that you can see that um, explain that. Now, if I have a little box on the side with some examples of time references, they're on your paper there, that you can watch for. Now, did you see anything obvious in this passage that tells us when this takes place. Are we told? Do we know? No, not, not really. Not really. Um, we'd have to speculate. What I want us to understand this morning when it comes to our, our when question, our time question, is that this, it, what we do know is this is the first. 
This is the first time we see a sinful action by humankind. Okay? And, and because it's the first, everything about this is significant. We know, as we keep reading, Romans will tell us that sin and death entered the world at this point and then spread to all men. All right? All right, let's move on to how. The question how. How does the serpent tempt? These are some ways we could answer that question. How does he get the woman to sin? How did he get them to choose to act independently of God? Well, this passage tells us a lot about how he works. talks a lot about his tactics. And so um, let's talk a little bit about that. Verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, and this is point one on your paper. He's crafty and resourceful because he cannot force you to sin. Did you know that? That's a good thing to remember. He does not have that kind of authority. He cannot force you to sin. He could not force her to sin. So what's he got to do? He's got to be crafty. He's got to be resourceful. He's got to tempt. All right, that brings us to question or point number two. He will take whatever appearance necessary in order to deceive. He will take whatever appearance necessary in order to deceive. Now, in the New Testament, we, he will, Paul will mention at least two times that the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. And uh, it's not like she went at this. It's not like she started to talk with the um, serpent and had malicious intent. She was tricked. She was deceived. All right, now because of that, you'll have commentaries and preachers, and they'll debate. They'll try to debate on whether women are the more gullible gender. And, and if, if this, is this why the serpent approached her? Listen, I don't really get caught up in that debate, but I do see this as a warning for me. The woman was deceived. It affected her family. The woman was deceived, not the man. So, so maybe there is something there. Maybe this is telling me that I, this is something that I have the potential of being weak in and that I have to go the extra mile and make sure that I'm filling my head and being careful to know truth. All right. All right, next thing. I want to see. All right, next. The serpent asks the question, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Okay, his first move here is to very subtly sow doubt about the authority of God and to devalue it. He suggests to them that it is open to interpretation and that this is something that they should judge for themselves. Our next point, he sows doubt about the truth and authority of God's word. One of my favorite stories <clears throat> is something that Ravi Zacharias tells. He tells the story of meeting up with one of his previous translators, and he had not seen this translator in many, many years. And he asked the translator, how have you been? And the translator began to explain to him that he had been in prison. He had been arrested and thrown in prison for his faith. And he went on to say that um, 
it got, it got very bad. He, he became very distressed. He was very distraught. And he finally gets to the point where he says to God, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. And that night, or that day, he was required to clean the men's latrine. And while he was doing that, he looked down into a waste paper basket and saw a piece of paper with English on it. And he said it had been so long since he had seen English and he was just so anxious to try his skills. And, and he picked up that paper and he began to read, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, will nakedness, will peril, will sword? And he said he read those words and he just wept. He broke down that God would not let him go. Well, from that point on, he determined that he would volunteer to clean the men's latrine because the commandant had been given an English Bible and was using it as tissue. And so he would clean the restroom and gather up those pieces of paper and clean them. And then he would sneak them into his clothes and take them back to his room where he would study them and read them and, uh, when no one could see him. When I heard that, I was so convicted. It stopped me in my tracks because I found myself asking, how do I treat the word of God? Do I treat it like the translator? Do I treat it like the commandant? Do I treasure it? Do I study it? Do I memorize it? Do I meditate on it? Do I live it? Because if I can't answer yes to those questions, I'm in trouble. Because we have an enemy that works to devalue and diminish and, and so doubt on the word of God and its authority, and its importance in our lives. I want to um, read to you in September of this past year, Pew Research revealed the results of a survey and wrote that 72% of the public think that religion's influence is waning. All right, that's the highest it's been in a decade. That reveals that almost three-fourths of the public is basically saying that American Christianity is not having an impact. It doesn't influence. Not surprisingly, different survey. This one was done by Lifeway Research that tells us that most churchgoers do not read or study their Bible on a daily basis. The bulk of the respondents said that they engage the Bible once a week, once a month, or a few times a month. The director of the study went on to say, regular Bible engagement is both personal and requires discipline. Neither are popular in Western culture today. Okay, that's the enemy. The enemy is continually trying to minimize the importance of God's word. All right, next thing. Number three, he sows doubt about the character of God. All right, First, he started by sowing doubt on the word of God. Now he's attacking the character of God. God had lavished them with blessing. 
And the serpent comes along and he's suggesting that God is withholding from them. That maybe God's character is not all that he's appearing to be. He's casting doubt on God's goodness. All right. And he does the same thing with us today. He says things like, you know, if God, he plants ideas in our head. You know, if God really loved you, you wouldn't have to go through that. You know, if God really cared about you, he'd fix this. Now, um, our authors put it this way. I quote, Once we doubt the goodness of God, we feel justified in rejecting his will and making our own decisions about right and wrong. Oh, that's true. That's true. We, it's easier to act independently if we are doubting the character and goodness of God. All right, verse 3. The woman repeats the command to the serpent, although she adds something. And then we see in verse 4, we see Satan completely contradict the command of God. He says, oh, you will not die. Okay, first he's sowing seeds of doubt. Now it's full, full attack, full frontal attack. So number five is he denies the truth of God's word. He denies the doctrine of judgment. He comes right out and he tells the woman she's not going to die. D.A. Carson said that if you want to escape the authority of God in the scriptures, start by denying judgment. Deny the sanctions. Suggest it's safe. That's what the enemy does. Earlier this year, Vanity Fair had an article by Monica Lewinsky entitled Shame and Survival. It was her recounting her experience and recovery from the scandal of her affair with Bill Clinton. She explained that she had been a humiliation virgin up to that point. But then after that, she became the most humiliated woman in all the world. And I read it, and I felt very sorry for her. She was young. I felt bad. And, but then there was this part of me that was thinking, what did you think would happen? He was a married man. He was the president. Did you think that nothing would happen? Well, that's what the enemy presents to us. It's the way much of the world is thinking. The enemy plants the idea that there is no judgment and that sin has no consequence. You know, when my kids were little, I could hear them, and they might be playing, and then I would hear maybe somebody say something unkind or be disrespectful, or maybe there was just general chaos, and I would think to myself, you know, you should get up and take care of that. Get to the bottom of it. Somebody probably needs disciplined or corrected. And then there was this other side of me that said, or you could just pretend you don't hear it. (laughs) Just keep working. You know, you're busy. Oh, what will it matter? So what if you overlook this? That's, that's That's just what the enemy is continually throwing our way, that sin has no consequence. Okay. Number six. Let's move on to number six. He offers up an alternative that looks attractive, harmless, and promising. Okay, this is a big one. He offers an alternative. He wants you to think there are options. And these options, of all, they're good for you. They're promising. They're harmless. They're attractive. Remember what we've said. He can't force us to sin, so he's got to make it interesting. He's got to make it appealing and enticing, which he does. Number seven, he makes sin look logical. He makes sin look logical. You 
being the boss in your home, you're being the leader taking charge in your home, that may make perfect sense, but it's rebellion. You withholding sex from your husband, using it to manipulate him so that he does things that you want, that may be perfectly logical, but it's sin. The enemy, he, he, he makes sin look logical. All right, now why spend an entire week talking about Genesis chapter 3? I mean, we're having a, a nice little lesson about womanhood, nice little course about womanhood, and then we come to chapter 4, and we spend a whole week talking about the garden and, and Genesis chapter 3. Well, that's because Genesis chapter 3 had an impact on our womanhood. It's made a mess of it. We're no longer in the garden. Since Genesis chapter 3, we are flawed women that want our own way, and we are walking around this earth with flawed men that want their own way. Because of Genesis chapter 3, our womanhood will never make sense apart from the gospel. And that's what we need to understand. That brings us to our last point. Because of sin... Our womanhood needs redeemed. Our womanhood needs redeemed. Next week, we are going to take a look at the specific gender-related consequences of Genesis chapter 3 of the fall. And then we'll also talk about redemption. So good news is coming. So, all right, I'm going to close this out with prayer. And then I have a few announcements because we're missing some mentors and I want to make sure everybody knows where to go. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for the authority of the word of God. Father, we thank you for the way the word of God tells us and prepares us so that we are able to watch and guard ourselves against the enemy. Father, I pray and ask that you will help us to be women who love the word of God and chase it down, and that we will be women ready and watching and prepared for the attack of the enemy. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.